These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love, your faith, your service and perseverance, and that you are doing more than you did at first. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling, so I will cast her a bed of suffering, on a bed of suffering, and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead, then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds, and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule with them, rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, that is the church of Thyatira, and uh, that is John's letter to this church. And we see that this letter is actually the longest of all the letters to the churches. And it's interesting because Thyatira was probably the least impressive city of the seven. Um, there was no significant geographical location to the city, um, no major resources that made it valuable. It was basically a, a military fort that had become a city. And therefore, the population of people in the city were working class people, people who worked in, in, in trades and in construction and in, you know, they didn't really have a lot of manufacturing, but they did. And these were just jobs, people who worked. And along with the jobs, the trades, um, historians and archaeologists are aware of guilds existing. Now, what is a guild? Well, a guild is like a, a workers group. Like if you are, uh, let's say you are a shoemaker and you make shoes since we had a great shoe activity tonight. And so what a guild is, is all the shoemakers of Debertson, they get together and they have a club. It's called the Shoemaker Club. And uh, in order to have successful shoemaking business here in Debertson, you got to be part of the shoemaking club or else you're not going to get into the market. They're not going to let you get resources. They're not going to send you customers. So you're, you would be part of a guild. Uh, the problem was that these were not just professional work guilds. Like we have those today, by the way. Uh, I know in the States we have carpenters, we have unions, electric unions. Uh, I imagine it's similar here, just corporations, groups that you're a part of. The problem with these guilds is that it was more than just work-related. They were like a party zone. Uh, they, were, they were kind of a mix, a quasi-mix of, uh, 
immorality and cultic worship. They would have these gatherings and meals that would turn into uh, like kind of like a worship celebration, but they were filled with drunken partying and in the spirit of the guild, it's like what they say about Las Vegas. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. What happens in the guild stays in the guild, but it never does. That's the truth. As strange as it is, these guilds were gatekeepers to the city. So what it would mean is that it would be difficult, if not impossible, to be a citizen of Thyatira and not participate in these guilds. I mean, you, if you wanted to have a job, you wanted to earn money, you wanted to be prosperous, you would have to join a guild. Therefore, the Christians of Thyatira faced a very difficult dilemma. If they were members and participated in the, in the life, uh, their material and financial interest would increase, um, they would be secure, but if they refused, then it would basically be economic suicide. That's a tough choice if you think about your options. William Barclay is a well-known uh, scholar, and he says this way, he says it this way, the problem which faced every Christian in Thyatira was whether they were to make money or to be Christians. Can you imagine having that as your opportunity? Those were your options. It's a tough choice. Your choice was to be a Christian and refuse to participate in these morally compromised groups, or, or you could stay away from it and find yourself in poverty in order to make ends meet. In the midst of this pressure, the church of Thyatira was doing some things right. We see this with each of the churches in Revelation, and they were commended for their love and their faith, their service and perseverance. And, you know, they, were, they were doing the work of the church. They were trying to make a difference in their community. And in, the, in verse 20, it says that, or well, in verse 19, we see that they were growing in these areas. But then we come to verse 20, where it says, Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. Ah, have you ever heard the name Jezebel? Some of you are smiling. Uh, have you ever met, this is another question, have you ever met somebody named Jezebel? I never have either. Uh, why is it that, it's such a pretty name. Why, and it's biblical. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't somebody name their beautiful daughter Jezebel? You kind of get where this is going. I did a, a little research on this, by the way, and I was curious if anybody had ever had the name Jezebel, and I, there's a, a, a resource you could look up to see the most, the 1,000 most popular names in any given year at any time, and believe it or not, the name Jezebel never made any list. So I've never actually met a Jezebel. The reason is because the story of Jezebel from the Old Testament, you know, she's like, kind of represents all the evil, you know, just idolatry. What happened is she was the wife of King Ahab, which is another one of those, uh, think about the worst kings of Israel. He's, he's right on that list. May even be like number one. But he was not a good king, and he was married, uh, political marriage to Jezebel, 
who, you know, when nations come together and try to work treaties, and in those days kings would marry uh, people from different countries as sort of political marriages. Well, he married Jezebel, and Jezebel insisted that she bring her own culture and her religion into the fabric of Israel, God's people. And that she did. In, in fact, she did it to such an extreme that she brought in Baal worship and put to death prophets of God and, and promoted her own prophets of Baal. And there was this contest on Mount Carmel. And if you remember Elijah, that story where one prophet of God takes on 450 prophets of Baal. And you know the outcome of that story? It was a really cool story. You'll have to go back and read it. But uh, God, basically, uh, Elijah prays and God brings down fire and lights up this, this, this water-soaked altar. And uh, really kind of funny too. But he shows them off. Elijah shows the, the prophets of Baal. But it doesn't dissuade Jezebel one bit. So she chases after him. Anyways, the, the reality is that Jezebel was so terrible, no one would actually want that name. So, it's most likely that the person described in verse 20 is probably not actually named Jezebel, but represents a person who is leading people into idolatry, to a false worship, to tolerance, to a compromised faith. And the worst part about it is the church was tolerating her. Now, I don't know if that means giving her a position of leadership. Uh, she had some kind of position, and they were, they were letting it happen and accepting, tolerating this widespread sin. And specifically mentioned here are sins of sexual immorality and eating of food, sacrificed to idols. These were all things that represent tolerating immoralness, immorality in the life of the church. And so what they, they were doing is they were justifying it. You know, that's possible when we have issues or something we want to do, or compromise our faith. We, we tend to justify it. We can find a way to do it. Uh, and, and in their mind, they were justifying it by making a separation of your physical body and your spiritual body. So they would say, you know, as long as you have your devotion, as long as you pray, and, and as long as you're spiritual, you're okay with God, but your physical body, well, it can kind of do its own thing. So they were justifying and separating it, where in reality we know that God creates us physical and spiritual beings, and, and they are intricately linked together. Your body is as important as your soul and vice versa in following Christ. And so they would rationalize sin by saying it's just what you have to do to survive in a complex culture. It's just what you have to do these days. Now, honestly, it's not too difficult to understand. I think of, if we look at the problems in each of these churches, this one is probably the most understandable because we can get that. We understand what it means to, to wrestle with making justifications because of our circumstances. Oh, we, we've got to put food on the table. We've got to something. And so we, we take the pressure and we, we accommodate and we tolerate. Oh, I've got I to gotta get a good grade on this test. I can, I can look at some of these notes. I can, I can cheat. I mean, we, we can tolerate these things. 
And it's a challenging, it's a challenge to, to live out of our conviction instead of compromise our conviction. It's a tough choice. And to be truthful, we find ourselves in the exact same position. There are times when you find yourself at the intersection of conviction and success and you have to make a choice. Conviction or success. There is a movie that is one of my favorite all-time movies. It's called Chariots of Fire. And uh, it's a true story about the 1924 Olympics. That was a long time ago. But really cool story, and it's a true story uh, about a runner, a particular runner, who was a devout Christian by the name of Eric Little. Are you familiar? I'm just curious. Raise your hand if you're familiar with that story. Anybody? Some of you have heard that story. Okay. Uh, Eric was a great runner, and was, he was Scottish, I think, selected by his country, Great Britain, to run in the Paris Olympics of 1924. On the way there, however, Eric learned that in order to compete in the 100-meter dash, which was his race, he was favored to win that race, in order to compete in that race, he had to run qualifying heats, meaning, you know, eliminate the competition. He had to run those races on Sunday. Now, to a lot of people, the whole conflict disappears because they don't understand why would somebody not want to do that on a Sunday? Well, there's a good reason that Sunday or a day of rest is part of God's plan for our lives. And Eric really wrestled with this. And so to a lot of people's surprise, even in 1924, he chose to not run the race in which he was favored to win. Can you imagine that? Being on the Olympic team of your country and letting your conviction of following Christ and his plan for a Sabbath rest stop you from winning or running the Olympics in which you're projected to win. It's, it's amazing. As you can imagine, he was pressured to run by political leaders from his country, by the coaches, yet Eric resisted. And you know what he did on the Sunday morning that he was supposed to be running the race? He, uh, he worshiped and was actually preaching a message from Isaiah 40. Uh, it says, but they, shall, but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not be faint. And so I want to show you a, a clip of this movie where he's preaching, and his teammates are competing uh, at the Olympics, and they're failing miserable, miserably. And, and it's just kind of a cool picture I want to show you. Hopefully it'll work.
Pretty cool little picture there. Uh, putting the uh, opposites, the extremes in picture where Eric is being faithful, believing that if he responds, stays true to his convictions, trusts in the Lord, that God will give him strength. That God, do you believe that? Do you believe that if you stick to following Christ, if you you avoid the temptation if you trust in his plan for your life, even if it's hard in the circumstances around you, do you believe that, that he will renew your strength? Well, cool story here because Eric did not run the 100 meter dash on that day. Uh, instead, he was offered another opportunity. It was the 400 meter dash. Uh, it was an event uh, in which he did not train for and was not favored to win. Um, and so he ran that race instead. Well, if you know the story, you know what happened. Uh, he won that race and not only won it, but set a world record. And this is actually true. You have to look this up. He set up the 1924 world record for the 400 meter run. Uh, and not only did he, did he win that, but he didn't let the, the victory, you know, change his life from his desire to serve Christ. He went on to be a missionary in China and served out the rest of his life, um, serving the Lord, teaching the good news of Jesus to people who might not otherwise hear it. And uh, it's a cool story uh, of someone who at the intersection of conviction and success chose conviction. So there's one more video clip I wanna show you. It kinda shows the winning race. You have to see the winning race.
That's a pretty cool story. You should see that movie if you haven't seen it. Maybe you, if you have, you want to see it again. Maybe we should have movie night. Cherries of Fire, I'm ready to watch that. You might think, okay, things have changed since 1924 concerning conviction. Uh, now in our sophisticated contemporary society and, and maybe that this concept of, of conviction of, of something like Sabbath rest doesn't really apply to our church these days. But, but if you're honest, you know that it does. You know that conviction still matters, that God's word is still true, and that when you wait on him, that God still gives you strength. You see, um, this issue, even like resting on a Sabbath, you might think is it, is it's a trivial issue, but is it really? When the entire world watches us, how we live our lives, and there's pressure from the outside to compromise the truth of Christ. Now these are the kind of actions, uh, the, the compromising, the falling away from the truth that cause suffering long-term. And that's what verse 22 says in this passage. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. God is slow to anger and willing that all would come to repentance, but eventually he does respond. And thankfully, though, what God wants to do is not to punish. What God wants to do is to bring restoration and grace. We, we've got to remember that this is the heart of our Heavenly Father. Uh, and we see it in verse 26. He says, To the one who is victorious, and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. The heart of our Heavenly Father, the heart of Jesus is the one, just like the, the parables in Luke, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son, is the one seeking us. Even now, I believe he's seeking because lost things matter 
And now there's, there's a moment, there's time to respond. If there's sin or anger or fear or bitterness in your life, God wants you to deal with it and come to him and let it go. Receive forgiveness and allow the Holy Spirit to fill your life again. So the, the, the message, and the message really to each church is this. Jesus says, whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. If you listen to the Holy Spirit speaking in your life, you will hear what God has to say. And if you respond, you'll be victorious. Isn't that what you want? To win in the big game of life, not the little things, but the big game. That victory can be yours today. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for this message to the church at Thyatira. Lord, we know in our own lives we struggle with compromise. We struggle with sliding uh, away from the truth, with making little adjustments, with thinking, oh, it doesn't really matter so much. But Lord, faithfulness matters. Lord, truth matters and, and trusting you matters. And help us to, to live that way, to live waiting on you to be filled with your strength. Lord, we want that in our lives. We pray and we ask and we thank you for now, even this moment of grace an opportunity to come to you and, and to give up those things and in exchange for your grace and your life. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.